Welcome to the Kingless Generation. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock, and this is a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. This week, I have, first of all, to thank all of you who have su- subscribed. We have some new subscribers. The uh, podcast is really growing. I've now added a Discord server. On there, we have channels for all kinds of different modes of production, as I've kind of just tentatively outlined things. And then also different cultures, different, you know, to avoiding uh, kind of avoiding nation states where possible, right? Things that happen to coincide with modern nation states. Uh, but looking at cultural developments, you know, I, I have certain uh, idiosyncratic groupings that I hope you'll appreciate, uh, like the, Hel- the Hellenistic synthesis. And I think there has to be some kind of occultist synthesis for the 19th century, 18th to 19th century kind of. Uh, global bourgeois um, search for uh, these weird new kinds of religions. Uh, And there's a worker, there's kind of a proletarian side to that too, actually, uh, particularly in Japan with the so-called new religions of the terminal uh, Tokugawa, the late Tokugawa, right? Um, Yeah, there's a a lot to get into, and we can kind of... uh, It'll be a little bit democratic. I want to open it up. You know, we can have mods and voting and uh, motions and and things to create channels or delete them or whatever you want to do. So definitely, uh, if you're uh, pirating this or listening to it on somebody else's thing or or something, uh, definitely uh, subscribe. And you too can join the the Kingless Generation on Discord and uh, discuss... Uh, look at you know uh, some materials right some of the materials that I've used to produce these episodes I'm posting as well so you can read some of the same texts that I'm reading uh, right and uh, for this week we're jump we're jumping uh, from time to time uh, you know most most people might be living in the 21st century uh, some people brag about uh, I'm in I'm in 2023 the 23rd century or something. Uh, well, today we're going to be in the 20th century BCE, which, uh, and, and I can make that claim with a little bit of confidence because, uh, you know, a lot of the time actually people think that they are going back to some kind of original source or something, but in fact, they're in, uh, you know, they're in the 19th century, they're in the, you know, whatever kind of synthesis, they're in the 1960s. Um, the 1960s, I want to call the California synthesis on the discord actually i think and, and we can put like uh mk ultra in there we can put uh the new religions sort of created by um all kinds of people in the 60s and hippies the hippie uh syn- synth- synthesized kind of synthetic uh cultural movement like that uh in there and you have kind of uh changing views of man right changing views of man 
which you can, there's a great episode on that on subliminal jihad, and you can uh, learn a little bit about that. That really reminded me of the Hellenistic synthesis too. And I feel like maybe the 1960s in California was a certain kind of similar moment to say, uh, you know, the, the AD, AD 60s, just 60s, where you have the Apostle Paul writing the earliest documents that are in the New Testament, right? The Gospels seem to come from 90 or a little bit later. Uh, yeah, and uh, you have uh, hermetic tradition sort of taking uh, this. You have to, you really, I'm convinced, having read the um, one of the books of Tote that survives in, in Egyptian and has been rediscovered, that you have to not know Egyptian and you have to only know Greek and be bringing this very exoticizing mindset to an Egyptian text in order to invent like the doctrine of the logos that you see in the gospel of John or something. That's how you get that from a a kind of hermetic. This is what hermeticism kind of is, I think. Right. And, uh, yeah. So I think you can connect that to California. We have all kinds of connections that we can draw and I'm sure it'll continue to grow quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I'll be sharing readings and everything. So, so get on there if you're not already, uh, let me know if you have any trouble getting on there. I know, um, you should be, you should get a, an invite automatically. So this week we have from, uh, the 20th century BCE or so the discourses of the eloquent peasant, which is second, uh, in importance only to the story of Sinuhe in, uh, ancient Egyptian literature. And uh, it's attested in many Middle Kingdom copies, uh, all on papyri in hieratic. So we have, uh, so I'm working from uh, James P. Allen's Middle Egyptian Literature, which is a supplement to uh, his textbook, Middle Egyptian, which is in its third edition at this point. And you can probably find that somewhere. If you want to learn Egyptian, you can do that. Uh, it's a very interesting language. It's, the writing system kind of is similar to Japanese in some ways, although it's an abjad. Uh, we only record consonants, and for that reason, the pronunciation of it is just conventional. We don't know how it would have been pronounced. We have some clues from Coptic. Coptic is the, the final stage of the Egyptian language, which uh, in order for Chinese to overtake Egyptian as the longest attested written language, it would have to survive for another another thousand or two thousand years or two, because I think we have uh, Chinese writing from the 13th century BCE, and yeah, the Narmer palette is one of the earliest uh, Egyptian inscribed objects, and isn't that like 3000 BCE? Yeah, the 31st century. That's when it's dated to. So, yeah, but this is from the 20th century, a thousand years later. And we have a, a story of a peasant. There's a, there's a story, and then within the frame of that story, a peasant getting sort of shafted, getting scammed, basically. Uh, there's a... Um, it's almost like, like the scam where you... What is it called when you... You get someone to hit you with their car, and then you sort of try to ask them for compensation or something. He gets that. That happens to him basically uh, at the hands of a corrupt official, and he goes to complain about it to that official's superior. And uh, there's this bizarre device where that official 
talks to the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh advises him, just, just stall, don't give an answer right away and uh, just let him talk and then record everything that he says because the, the official introduces him to the Pharaoh by saying, I have found one of those peasants who is very eloquent in speaking. And uh, so every, all of his eloquent discourses are recorded and it's kind of like moralistic proverbs and things about just justice. You know, the, the Egyptian term ma'at is very important here or ma'at to use. I'm using kind of Arabic pronunciation of the ayin a little bit there. Uh, of course, we don't really know how it was pronounced. I, and then the, the, con- the other convention is to just put e's or us between all of the consonants because we don't, again, we don't know. And then it'll be written in a notation with just the consonants when you transliterate from the, from the hieroglyphs. But yeah, hieroglyphs will mostly be recording phonetic information, just the consonants, and then also you have determinatives, which are meaning-bearing, or, or they narrow down sort of the meaning expressed by the phonetic component. Or sometimes they can just be one sign for a whole word, and very often you get all kinds of interesting play with the rebus principle, right? Like you can write the word B in English with a little bumblebee or something, and that, all that sort of thing, immediately as you're inventing writing, you have the rebus principle at work. And sort of, uh, we see this in Mesopotamia and uh, in, in Chinese writing as well, which also has a phonetic component, by the way. Um, so it's not magical in the way that many Europeans in the Renaissance sort of thought that Egyptian writing was magical and it had sort of direct access to the world of ideas in a Platonic sense. So often linguists will use the word logographic when they talk about a, a sign that stands for a word because it is a word in a language. It isn't an idea. So ideograph is a word that some people don't like. Uh, and I think it's an important distinction too. Surely it'll be important for our purposes too because we want to strip away a lot of kind of orientalizing, you know, exoticizing uh, discourse about things like Egyptian culture, right? Because it's just a regular fucking country, you know, at the end of the day. Um, that's that's a perspective that I definitely want to share with you here, that it's just a country, you know? I mean, it's it's a very unique and interesting, um, you know, it's not a modern nation state, but it's a very interesting culture, right? One of, one of many. Um, but let's check it out. Uh, so there's this uh, this peasant, we start out, Zipu Wenu Huaninpu Renef, right? There was a man. Uh, so we have here, Pu is, is that. So if it was Hebrew, so I know Hebrew and a little bit and um, not really Arabic, but so if it was Hebrew, it'd be, you know, Ish, Ishze, um, the man this. But in, in Egyptian grammar, A, Pu, B, is a is a sentence form that is like um you know what there was was this and what it this is this a a equals b it can mean as well so z is ish man um and then when wenu um that's um what exists right um so a man there was a man um ruininpu is his name um ren is name ren f F is third person singular masculine possessive ending. Much like in Hebrew, it would be Vav, right? Which can be pronounced O or just or of 
depending on the context, right? So similar languages, right? Egyptian is Afro-Asiatic, which is the larger family that includes Semitic. And then Semitic would be broken down into other things, right? Including Hebrew and Arabic. So that's the tree there. But uh, yeah, there was a man named Huininpu. He was a peasant of Saltfield, and he had a wife named Merit. So we have a um, little family, right? Uh, we have the father, we have the wife, we have patriarchy, right? So that peasant said to that wife of his, this, this translation is very, very literal, and that, I love it because it, it leaves you the contours of the Egyptian language as much as possible. So I'm not going to be reading from the Egyptian language with you, but it's nice. You can get the flavor of it, right? And isn't that the fun of really learning a very, very different language? Concepts uh, and rhetoric and, and the flow of thought are completely, can be expressed in a very, very different order in a very different format. And it's just extremely, you can think things that you couldn't think otherwise. And uh, yeah, you have very different kinds of consciousness. You have different, you know, we don't want to fetishize that. We don't want to reify that. But at the same time, that is real. And that's, that's a great benefit of studying a great variety of languages from a variety of times and places. So that peasant said to that wife of his, look, I am going down to Blackland. That's Kemet. That's Egypt, right? Blackland, probably because the, the soil there gets darker with the nutrients of the Nile River place like the Nile River Delta or Mesopotamia, the Tigris and Euphrates are great places to invent agriculture and therefore get some of the earliest grain states. I'm going down to Blackland to get provisions there for my children. Now go measure for me the barley that is in the storehouse as the balance of yesterday. As the balance as of yesterday. So we have a gendered division of labor. The woman is going, um, then he measured for her six hecat of barley. Um, so that peasant said to that wife of his, look, I will give you 20 hecat of barley for income with your children. So it's a little confusing, but it looks like they have 26 hecat left. And he's going to take six, and then he's leaving 20 with the wife and the children. Uh, we have here, right? Income is measured in amounts of grain, nutrition, rather than value per se, perhaps. Although we'll see some, some concepts of value a bit later too. Um, he says, And you make me those six heck out of barley into bread and beer for every day, and I will live on it. So he's going to trade a bunch of things for more grain, I think, because he's out of grain. Um, the setting now, um, so the, um, the salt field seems to be the oasis now known as Wadi Natrun characterized by its deposits of salt, natron, right? It lies some 60 miles northwest of modern Cairo in the western desert and some 50 miles southeast of Alexandria. The location lay outside Egypt, black land proper, and its inhabitants were therefore seen by the majority of Egyptians as provincial in both customs and language. So he sets out. What that peasant did was to go down to black land, having loaded his donkeys with... Uh, reeds, palm fronds, natron, salt, sticks of iruyu wood, right? There's a lot of things that we don't know what it is, but it has the determinative for uh, wood, which is a little stick. So we know that it's some kind of wood, you know, we don't. Um, staves of farafra, leopard skins, wolf pelts, pond weed, pebbles, 
wander plants, big beetle plants, resin. These are things that a grain state doesn't necessarily have in their urban centers. And so a peasant from further out is going to be able to get these things from the countryside. And he can go in and trade those for grain. And that's what he's going to do. This has been a quick sample of the latest episode of the Kingless Generation podcast. If you'd like to hear the full episode, please subscribe at patreon.com slash irregnata, I-R-R-E-G-N-A-T-A. That's unruled in Latin, feminine singular. So, uh, and then you can also, you get the whole catalog of episodes and you can, uh, we also have a Discord server now, so you can discuss with fellow listeners and myself. We can organize, uh, we can think, uh, we can develop the ideas that are on this podcast. And I also post readings, uh, some of the texts that I am working from in the podcast. So you can, uh, you get all that, right, for the, the low proletarian price of three thirty-three. Seems kind of... Um, like nice numbers. I know 33 is, is sus, right? Like I don't know my numerology super well, but uh, I think three threes is, should be good, right? Isn't that good? Three is a good number. Uh, anyway, anything less than, anything, it has to be more than $3 or else Patreon uh, charges a much higher rate and they'll get just mo- much more of your money uh, than if, if I make it more than $3. So... Uh, I hope to see you there. Uh, Please join the, the Kingless Generation. Peace.